A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I am glad that you've joined us on the program today. We're going to be talking about the right of the people and the growing number of people exercising their right to keep and bear arms. Larry Keene joins us in just a moment, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. We're going to be talking about the record number of firearms sold in the United States. The uh, final NICS numbers coming out on a Monday afternoon. According to the FBI, there were roughly 39 million, almost 40 million NICS checks performed over the course of 2020. Now, not all of those uh, involve gun sales, as we'll uh, talk about with uh, Larry, but the NSSF, they always take a look at those raw numbers and then they adjust the figures. They're able to look at the, the codes that are used as, well, that was for a permit check, that was for a gun sale. Uh, and they estimate, again, 21 million guns sold in the United States in 2020 and a staggeringly large number of new gun owners as well. What kind of impact? Will those new guns and those new gun owners have on the uh, gun control debate? We explore that and more in our conversation with Larry Keene. Take a look and a listen. Larry Keene, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. It's great talking with you today. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you, Cam. I hope you're well staying healthy. I am uh, doing my best. Yes, sir. And I uh, hope the same for you in uh, 2021. You know, 2020 was a pretty awful year for uh, a lot of people for a lot of reasons, but for the firearms industry, it was a record setter. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, according to the NSSF adjusted uh, estimates, 21 million firearms sold in the United States in 2020. That is, well, that's 30% higher than the previous record set back in 2016. Is that correct? That is, that is correct. It is the highest number ever achieved in the history of the, the next adjusted figures, uh, just uh, really unprecedented. And it's important to point out, Cam, that among the 21 million uh, firearms sold, based on the estimate, our survey data tells us that there are 8.4 million first-time gun buyers in 2020, which is pretty incredible that you know, almost eight and a half million people chose to exercise their fundamental constitutional rights secured by the Second Amendment for the first time. That is a lot of new gun owners, um, you know, just unprecedented. It really is. And so, so I know that the, the way that the NSSF uh, uh, reaches that estimate, you do surveys with gun store owners, with gun store employees. You're talking to folks within the industry. I'm curious. I mean, that, that that sounds like about, you know, 40% of gun sales were going to these new gun owners. How does that compare to years past? Obviously, the, the raw number of new gun owners is staggeringly large. But as a percentage of firearm sales, is that 40% figure also a lot higher than it has been in the past few years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in 2016, for example, roughly 25% of Customers were first-time buyers, according to our survey data from uh, retailers across the country. And so this is unprecedented at 40%. And of that 40% figure, roughly 40% were women. 
purchasing firearms for the first time. And we saw very large increases in different demographic categories. For example, African-Americans was about 58% year-over-year increase. Asian-Americans, something like 38% increase year-over-year. And so just unprecedented growth uh, in the industry and incredible numbers of first-time buyers across all demographics. And so, you know, it was really just remarkable. Absolutely. And we think it will have long-term, long-term impact, not just on the, the industry and on the sports, but on self-defense. And we think in terms of public policy, because many of these first-time gun buyers have come off the sidelines. They chose to protect their family and their rights uh, over listening to scare tactics of gun control groups that try to scare you out of purchasing a firearm. And so hopefully these people become gun voters. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of these... I don't know, Georgia. (laughs) Right? Yeah, well, we're definitely keeping our fingers crossed that that happens in Georgia. But, you know, you're right. I mean, I don't see these 8.4 million Americans who purchased a farm for the first time in 2020, I, I don't I don't think many of them did that as a short-term rental, thinking, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my gun now until they uh, come and take it away. I, you know, the, you're right. These were folks who, in many cases, you know, they may have been weighing this for years, but uh, the unrest and the rise in crime kind of drove them uh, to purchase a gun for the first time in 2020. Uh, others, you know, may have just decided, uh, I haven't, I, I've, I've never wanted to own a gun before, but I want to own a gun now. Uh, whatever their reasons, yeah. now that they're embracing their rights, I don't care if they're a Republican, if they're a Democrat, if they're an independent, if they've never voted before, um, hopefully they're now paying attention to what's going on uh, with the attacks on on the rights that they're now choosing to exercise. Um, and I want to talk about those long-term uh, impacts, but I, I, I want to go back for just a second because when I uh, reported on the NSSS figures yesterday on uh, social media, Uh, There was a reporter from CNBC who replied and said, do you think those numbers would be even bigger uh, if it were not for, you know, the fact that inventory was just wiped out? So so let me ask that question to you, Larry Keene of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Do you think we would have had even more than 21 million firearms sold in the country last year were it not for the fact that the the, the surge in, in gun purchases was so large that uh, you know, existing inventory basically got wiped out pretty early on in 2020. Yes, a- absolutely. I mean, I regularly get phone calls from friends, family members saying, hey, you know, I, I can't find, um, you know, what I'm looking for. You know where I can get it. Look at ammunition. And it's, you know, uh, hard to find ammunition. And because the, the factories are running at full capacity, trying to keep up with demand, but, you know, it's just basic economics. Demand outstrips supply. And um, so, yes, absolutely, the number would have been considerably higher uh, if there was more inventory. But um, who could have predicted a a a once-in-a-century global pandemic and the concern over public safety that would arise? Who could have predicted the defund the police movement and the rioting and unrest that has gone on in major American cities and the incredible spike in violent crime and murder in many of these cities um, that has caused people uh, to go out and purchase a firearm. And, And again, the survey data makes it very clear 
the primary reason people are purchasing firearms, particularly first-time buyers, is concerned for their personal safety, the safety of their families, due to all that's gone on. And uh, the, you know, we anticipated there would be an increase in sales tied to the election. It always seems to be the case, but you know, this started very early in the year when the pandemic really set in in like say March, but it has just continued unabated uh, right on through the year. And I don't see it letting up. I mean, the pandemic is still with us. We're going to see potentially unrest in Washington, D.C. this week. Um, from what we're reading, and demand is still very strong. It hasn't subsided, even though 2020 is now in hindsight. Yeah. Where it belongs. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, no, but you're right. I mean, the, the, the factors that, that, that caused the surge in gun sales while the calendar is flipped, uh, th- those factors are all still with us. And, you know, unfortunately, I think they're going to be with us for, for quite some time. Um, and to that end, you know, I know that a number of ammunition manufacturers, I think uh, Jason Hornady released a video a couple of days ago, uh, the uh, CEO of uh, uh, Remington uh, uh, released a video talking about and just sharing with the customers and with gun owners, look, here's what's going on. Here's why you're not able to find a lot of ammunition. And we promise you that we're working hard. We promise you we're going out and right. we're, you know, we're trying to increase our capacity as much as we can, but we can't just go out and build a new factory overnight. Um, you know, there, there've been some, I guess, some conspiracy theories that have been floated around that maybe the government's buying up all of the ammo. Uh, the government wants to, you know, get in the way of, of gun owners being able to purchase this stuff. And I was glad to see that the industry, uh, addressing some of those, some of those concerns, because really, I mean, what you said a couple of minutes ago, I think is, is the key here. This is simply a matter of supply and demand. You don't need to find some sort of conspiracy theory to account for the lack of ammunition yeah. on the shelf. You can point to 8 million new Americans who also now want ammunition, uh, as well as, you well, know, the, the existing... Exactly. exactly, right? You know, so I, I mean, is that is that truly what's going on? Is it really just a matter of supply and demand at this point? It really is that simple. We've seen these, you know, conspiracy theories that pop up we saw that a couple of years ago when there was a um, spike in demand for ammunition. There was a theory that uh, was never true, that somehow the Department of Homeland Security was buying all the ammunition so that civilians couldn't have ammunition. Uh, it, that was not true then. It isn't true now. There is no grand conspiracy to um, suppress supply. Uh, to raise prices. I mean, it, it makes no economic sense. Why would a manufacturer with rising demand decide to reduce production and not to sell to those customers? That it just doesn't make any economic sense. You know, the, the Homeland Security um, conspiracy theory was based on a misunderstanding about a government supply contract that, you know, um, the way they're written, but it was never true then, not true now. No one is, you know, the manufacturers are not engaged in a conspiracy amongst themselves, which would be a violation of antitrust law to suppress supply. In fact, you know, you know, one company would be very happy if another company decided not to produce, and they would capture that market share. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is just economics 101. 
supply and demand. Demand currently outstrips supply. It is very, you can't build a factory overnight. And as has been explained in a number of those videos, you can't just hire a worker, put them on the production line, and you know you have to train them up. That's true on the ammunition side. It's true on the firearms manufacturing side. I had a conversation with Tom Sullivan, who runs the Ruger factory, about precisely that point, that you know, they're hiring, but it takes time to get people hired and trained to where they can you know, contribute to production. So, uh, And uh, that's just the reality of the market. No one is suppressing supply. Yeah. All right, now let's talk about those those long-term impacts of these 8.4 million new gun owners. Probably, again, going to be close to 9 million, I, I'm guessing, by the end of January. Do you think that, that this will have an impact, first of all, on uh, anti-gun politicians? Are, 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 are they taking notice uh, of the fact that, well, you know, Joe Biden, for example, is calling for a ban and compensated confiscation of modern sporting rifles. Uh, several million of those rifles were sold. Uh, in the United States in, yep. in 2020. Uh, this is the most popular, most commonly sold centerfire rifle in the country today. Does this, do you think this can have an impact on the anti-gun agenda uh, in Washington, D.C. this year? Yes. The gun control community is not taking note of the fact that there are nearly 8.5 million new gun owners in 2020. And as you say, that number you know, will continue January and on, uh, then uh, they are really foolish because it will have an impact. Even if, let's say, just half of those um, new firearms owners consider the gun laws that they encountered for the first time and how it impacted their ability, law-abiding Americans to exercise their rights, and how it has nothing it has no impact on reducing crime. Just if half of those people engage politically and vote uh, their rights, that will have a tremendous impact on legislation and policy moving forward. And you're right, modern sporting rifles are by far the most popular rifle being sold in America today. That's been true for over a decade. There are in excess of 20 million of these modern sporting rifles the possession of law-abiding Americans just since 1990. They've been on the market, the civilian market, since at least 1963. And, you know, these are very popular. People use them for target shooting, for home protection, and increasingly for hunting. Um, So it'll be interesting to see in this new Congress whether Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and the Biden-Harris administration pursue these policy objectives legislatively or otherwise uh, in the face of this surging number of new gun owners in the United States. All right. Last question for you, Larry. Uh, Public comment ended on Monday uh, for this proposed rule by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Uh, This is basically, uh, you know, ensuring that there is uh, no discrimination on the part of large uh, financial institutions against disfavored industries like the firearms industry. Um, this public comment period, I, I just checked here. According to uh, regulations.gov, there were 6,392 
comments received on this uh, proposed rule. I haven't had a chance to read through all 6,300 of them to see uh, how many were in favor, how many opposed, but uh, that seems like a, a, a really strong response to this proposed rule. What are the next steps and, and, and when will we know whether or not this rule change uh, will be adopted or not? Yeah, so I, I haven't read them all either. That'd be a pretty daunting task, but I have <laughs> kind of uh, popped in and just sort of perused uh, comments every day as they were coming into the electronic portal. Uh, and I would say initially there was anti-gun comments driven by grassroots alert from Guns Down America, but um, increasingly over time and seemingly overwhelmingly, there were pro-Second Amendment comments or pro-free uh, market comments that banks should not be discriminating, picking you know winners and losers and making policy choices. That's for the legislature. So we will now, uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency has to um, go through all of the comments and take them into account as part of the Administrative Procedure Act. And then presumably we'll publish a final rule um, in the near term. Um, I'm sure they've been going through the comments as they come in and not waiting till they all end. Um, you know, NSSF submitted comments, a couple of manufacturers, distributors, and retailers have, and other um, industries, not just the firearms industry, because the rule is not specific to firearms, but um, discrimination, but all industries. So, you know, oil, coal, uh, animal agriculture, mining, and others, private prisons, uh, have all been impacted by this discrimination, really the privatization of Operation Choke Point. So we hope that the acting controller of the currency, Brian Brooks, uh, will move forward with the rule and finalize it um, before the end of the administration. Uh, the acting controller has been nominated to be uh, confirmed by the Senate as controller. We certainly hope that Leader McConnell will uh, proceed with that. The banking committee will proceed with that, and he will be confirmed. But uh, you know, the fact that he's acting doesn't prevent him from finalizing this rule. Uh, you know, Maxine Waters, who chairs the House Financial Services Committee, is uh, and other Democrat, anti-gun Democrats, have sent a letter uh, opposing the proposed rule and threatening to repeal it if it's ever enacted. But um, you know, that's not up to her and. I don't think she could get that through a divided Congress again back to see what happens in Georgia. But um, it's really a very important issue, not just for our industry, but it really is important for the proper functioning of a democracy. You know, these public policy choices should not be made in Ivy Towers by unelected board members caving to pressure from the social justice warriors. Because, you know, today it's firearms, tomorrow it's whatever becomes the disfavored industry du jour by uh, these individuals that are trying to affect legislation through policy choices by corporations. And that, and that is really not very good for democracy. It's certainly not good for your constitutional rights. Yeah, you got that right. Uh, Larry Keene, Senior Vice President, General Counsel at the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Listen, I, I appreciate uh, you coming on the program today. I know we're going to be talking quite a bit during 2021, but uh, best wishes in the new year 
And, uh, and, uh, you know, if you have any line on ammunition, just let me know. Just, you know, my email address, always, always looking out for an extra <laughs> box or two. Yes. Well, I, <laughs> as soon as I get I, mine, I was going to say, I bet you get that question uh, a lot these days. Uh, Larry, thank you as always, man. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. I do appreciate Larry joining us on the program. I'm sure he's going to be back in uh, just a few weeks. We'll probably be checking in with him, uh, you know, towards the end of the month or at least early February when we get the uh, Knicks numbers for January of 2021. But I will say I have to agree with Larry. I, I don't see this really changing uh, anytime soon. Now, what what might change over the course of the next five or six months uh, is that the ammunition supply, I think, is 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 gradually going to get better if we have no more curveballs, right? I mean, if we have an asteroid that starts coming towards Earth or a zombie invasion, obviously that's going to change things. But if we have no more curveballs thrown our way, uh, I, I think that the ammunition supply is going to gradually get better. I don't think it's going to be a matter of, you know, flipping a switch and all of a sudden things get back to normal. Uh, but, you know, the manufacturers are ramping up their supply as much as they can. Um, over the course of 2021, you may even see some of these manufacturers decide, all right, we are going to bring another factory online. It's going to take us, uh, you know, 18 months to build it. But we believe that this demand is now going to be sustained to the point that it makes sense for us to go ahead and build out our capacity. Uh, but what they're doing right now, you know, they're running 24-7. They're bringing on more uh, employees. But as Larry said, that takes time to, uh, to, to, to train those employees up. Um, so I just I suspect that things are going to get slightly better over the course of 2020, as far as the ammunition availability is concerned, slightly and gradually better. That's the uh, that's the most optimism that I can muster at the moment. All right, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, as well as our recidivist report. We'll start there with a story out of Colorado, where a uh, man from Pueblo arrested for shooting two sheriff's deputies and made a, a first court appearance. Uh, according to authorities, this guy, uh, well-known to uh, local law enforcement, he's actually, um, Eddie Lovins is his name, he's 48 years old. He allegedly shot at two deputies on New Year's Day. By the way, both of these deputies expected to make a recovery, uh, even though one was hit in the head. The deputies were conducting a welfare check after receiving a call from the Tennessee Highway Patrol. Lovins is accused of making threats against the Highway Patrol in Tennessee, uh, as well as making threats against the Capitol building in Tennessee. So now he's facing two counts of first-degree attempted murder, two counts of first-degree assault on a peace officer. Uh, he's due back in court in Pueblo County, Colorado, on Thursday morning. Uh, but uh, Fox 21 in Colorado reports that he had two previous run-ins with law enforcement. Back in 2015, Lovin was charged with harassment, third-degree assault, telephone obstruction, and false imprisonment after beating his fiance in Durango, Colorado. Yeah. Lovins pleaded guilty, and after one year of probation, the charges were dismissed. He pled guilty to beating his girlfriend, and he literally got a slap on the wrist. He threw a punch, he got a slap on the wrist. And after a year of keeping his nose clean as far as law enforcement was concerned, his probation dropped. He was... Free to go about his business. 2017, just shortly after his probation was revoked, or I shouldn't say revoked, uh, shortly after he completed the term of his probation, Lovins was arrested on a felicity menacing charge in Pueblo County. 
In that case, he didn't have to plead guilty. The charge was simply dropped. Here we are now, about three, maybe four years later, and Lovin facing again two counts of attempted first-degree murder on a peace officer as well as two counts of first-degree assault there in Colorado. Our armed citizen story of the day from Amarillo, Texas, where a homeowner shot and killed two burglary suspects on Monday morning. This is from a KFDA in Amarillo. It was about five, about 5.15 in the morning. Officers called to a uh, home there in Amarillo on, on uh, reports of a suspicious activity. Officers found two people dead in the home. Uh, detectives investigating learned that the homeowner confronted one of the people committing a burglary. Then the suspect attacked the homeowner. The two began fighting. A uh, homeowner armed with a handgun. Uh, police say the second person tried to assault the homeowner, and that is when the homeowner shot the suspects in fear for his life. 27-year-old Jesus Antonio Maldonado, 43-year-old Anthony Garone Adams, uh, both pronounced deceased at the scene. Detectives interviewed the homeowner, uh, later released him. The case will be presented to a grand jury, remains under investigation, but at this point, uh, all signs uh, point towards self-defense. We'll try to keep our eyes open for any developments and uh, updates in that story out of Amarillo. And finally today, our good deed of the day from New York State out on uh, Long Island where uh, Suffolk police say one of their own uh, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to save a couple whose uh, home was engulfed in flames. This was Saturday afternoon. According to officers in the Suffolk, Officer Sean Coletta uh, went inside the burning home and found 55-year-old Robert Baker and 51-year-old Deborah Baker trying to save their two dogs. Deborah Baker told News 12 that a woman had called 911 moments after the flame started and her husband sprinted next door to get all three people, including their tenant, out of the building. Uh, but she says she and her husband noticed their two dogs were still in the burning home and they went in after them. Officer got the couple outside, then attempted to rescue one of the animals. Uh, obviously, in that stressful situation, the uh, dog freaked out, ended up biting the officer. He was taken to the hospital for treatment of smoke inhalation as well as the dog bite. Shortly after, firefighters showed up. They rescued one of the dogs. The uh, second dog actually made it out on its own. So everybody, humans, animals alike, out of that burning home. Uh, Deborah Baker says there was actually an explosion in the house right after everyone escaped. So, I mean, this is scary stuff. They haven't determined the uh, cause of the fire. But, uh, again, Sean Coletta, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to rescue Robert and Deborah Baker uh, from that burning residence there in, uh, where was this, Selden, uh, New York. Appreciate your uh, very good deed, Officer Coletta. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. We will be back tomorrow, however, with more of the... Uh, Latest Second Amendment news and information. In fact, tomorrow we're going to be talking to my old friend, Nikki Gozer. Uh, if you don't know Nikki, she is the executive director of the Crime Prevention Research Center. She is a tireless Second Amendment advocate. And she got involved in her Second Amendment activism under the worst of circumstances. Uh, her beloved husband, Ben, was murdered right in front of her by a guy who had been stalking Nikki. Uh, and this happened, by the way, in a gun-free zone. Nikki Gozer had her concealed carry license. But she was not allowed at the time under Tennessee law to bring her lawfully owned firearm inside of the sports bar where she and her husband were running their uh, mobile karaoke business. 
she was required to be disarmed. Her stalker ignored the gun-free zone, brought a gun into that sports bar, and in front of Nikki, shot and killed the man she loved. Now, this guy was ultimately convicted. He was sentenced to 23 years behind bars. But he didn't stop trying to get to Nikki Gozer, even from behind a prison cell. He wrote her letters. For years, he wrote her letters that Nikki never received because she had told her uh, attorney at the time, she's like, I don't want to, if he tries to contact me, I don't want to see it. Apparently, he had done this really early on, like before he was even sentenced. And prosecutors just weren't really interested in the fact that the man who killed Nikki Gozer's husband was trying to contact her, telling her he loved her, how he'd be waiting for her, even if she found somebody else. They didn't apparently see anything wrong with that. I'm guessing you see something wrong with that. I see something wrong with it, too. Well, after it was discovered that this guy had been continuing to write Nikki Gozer for years behind a prison cell, Nikki wanted justice. She wanted some action to be taken. And now, thankfully, the U.S. attorney uh, there in uh, Nashville has charged the man who killed Nikki Gozer's husband with basically mail stalking, which comes with a five-year federal prison sentence. That's the good news. The bad news is that the man who killed Nikki Gozer's husband is still getting credit for good behavior behind bars. Yeah. Meaning that 23-year sentence isn't going to be a 23-year sentence even though he has not been on his best behavior while he's been incarcerated. We're going to get to the bottom of this with Nikki Gozer on tomorrow's program. I encourage you to check it out. If you've never heard Nikki's story, she is an amazing woman. This is an incredibly, I mean, this is one of our recidivist reports come to life. This is it. And uh, I hope that in talking to Nikki, we can help get some justice here. Uh, And I hope that you'll be a part of that effort as well. So we'll do that tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, don't forget, you can always subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss a program. Also on Rumble.com, we're Bearing Arms Cam and Company. If you want the audio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts as well. We certainly do appreciate your support uh, and uh, you spreading the word. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. We'll be back tomorrow with more. But until then, be well, be safe, be free. And we'll see you soon with more Bearing Arms Cam and Company.